to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Thank you so much, um, Pastor Andre and Daniel. Thank you guys for having me here. Um, it's such a blessing to be here with all of you. Uh, yes, I'm a professional apologizer, as some people say. No, I'm not. I'm an apologist with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Some of you may have heard of us. Um, we are, we've been in Singapore for a little while, actually, but um, we're broken up into three regions, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, the Asia-Pacific, and the Americas, uh, where Ravi and the global headquarters is. Singapore has just been named as the regional headquarters for the Asia-Pacific for RZIM. So we're very excited about... Um, this new stage of our ministry here, um, to really come alongside people like you, churches like yours, other movements for the gospel, and, and to serve you. We have two missions um, at RZIM that you might be familiar with. One is to help the thinker believe, and the other is to help the believer think. So we are very, very keen on serving two types of people, Christians and non-Christians. So if you're either in either one of those groups, you're exactly where you're meant to be this morning. And I'm very blessed and privileged to be able to serve you. Um, I'm a, very, a bit confusing to look at and listen to, so let me just clarify some things. I was born in Sri Lanka, so that's where my... Yeah! You know what? I've spoken in about 10 countries. That's the first time that has happened. I even spoke in Sri Lanka a couple of weeks ago and it didn't happen. Thank you guys. Bless you guys. So Sri Lanka is where my skin color comes from. I then lived in Australia for about 35 years, and yeah. <laughs> this is the best church I've ever spoken at. Uh, and that's where my crazy accent comes from. And then I was educated in Oxford in the UK for the last two years. And <laughs> now, now you're just doing it to be cool, right? And so that's why I'm wearing this jacket. Um, so that, that explains why I look like this and I sound like this. But now my wife and I live in Singapore. We live just... So I am a Sri Lankan, Australian, British, Singaporean. Very, very excited to be here. Um, I've been here for about six months. My wife Fiona and I and our baby Zach, um, Zachary. Unfortunately, they can't be here. They would have loved to have joined me. But uh, we are based at Redemption Hill Church, um, not far from here. And uh, today we're getting introduced as a family, as new members of the church. Uh, minus me, of course. So Fiona and Zach are representing me there. Uh, so they send their apologies, they send their prayers and their love and their wishes. They would love to come and, and meet all of you guys the next time they're here. But I've been here for about six months in Singapore, and we've been um, getting around and speaking in the marketplace, in churches, in businesses, in government agencies, um, answering people's questions, coming alongside them and answering their questions about the gospel of Jesus. That's all apologetics really is. It's taken from a verse in the Bible, 1 Peter 3.15, um, where we are told to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have and to do so with gentleness and respect. And that word reason, when it's translated from the Greek, the Greek is apologia. Always be ready to give an apologia, an apologetic. And the word apologia means a reasoned defense. So it's simply, all we do really is come alongside people, believers and non-believers, and help them with their questions about Jesus Christ. So anyone that's got questions, which should be all of us, I think, if our brains are switched on and we're thinking... Um, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, it can stand up to questioning. In fact, the truth is the only thing that can stand up to questioning. Um, so what we feel is that 
you can't argue people into the kingdom of God. We're not trying to do that. But you can reason with people. You can reason them out of irrational disbelief. You can reason with people who already know the Lord, who have doubts or who have questions, to draw them deeper um, into faith, into their relationship with Christ, to help them you know, overcome some of these obstacles and questions that the world is constantly throwing up. And you guys know all of this. It's wonderful to be here on a Sunday morning. But when we walk out those doors, it's tough out there. It's rough out there. And so one of the things we are here to do as a ministry... And we're so honored to be standing shoulder to shoulder with churches like yours in doing this, is to help people with their questions, to affirm you guys, to encourage you in your faith, to help people um, in the room who might not know the Lord yet, who haven't made that decision yet, um, to find him, to follow the evidence to where it leads, uh, so we can then go out there and be defenders and sharers of the gospel ourselves. And as I've traveled around Singapore just in six months, talking to people about this vision and speaking, um, so many people have said to me, oh, that's what you guys do. You should really hook up with the city. They're an amazing church in the CBD that is perfect for this kind of thing. Um, they're, they're young at heart. They're young in spirit. They're all incredibly cool and well-dressed and fashionable. Um, and now we finally get here six months later, and I see that all of those recommendations have been correct. So um, what you guys are doing here is reverberating across this city in a way that I don't think you fully understand because you're here every Sunday morning where so many people across the city are there talking about you. Uh, I've been spoken to about your church, about your pastoral team, about your leadership team and what the Lord is doing here by so many people that I think many of which haven't even met you guys before, but they just know. And so I'm very confident um, as an itinerant speaker that when the next wave of revival comes to this region and then many generations down the track where you know academics and scholars speculate on where it started and how it started, much of it will be traced back to this room and to this church. So I really want to encourage you with that. Uh, and being here this morning, just worshipping with you all, uh, has made that very, very clear to me. Uh, and you guys have an amazing music team, an amazing praise and worship team. Uh, you, should, you should be so proud and so pleased. All right. Let me just start with prayer and then I'm going to read um, a few verses and then speak to you about this topic, a God of the impossible. Uh, if you've got your Bibles or Bible devices, t- turn with me to John chapter 11. Many of you will be familiar with the story. I think most of you... And I'm going to take it from verse 17. And a very, very close friend of Jesus, a guy called Lazarus, has just passed away. And this is where we pick up this story. John 11 from verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, 
saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe what, that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just commit this time to you. We pray that our hearts and minds would be open. I pray that uh, you would increase and I would decrease and you would speak to each of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know that was a lot of scripture. Don't freak out. I'm not going to preach exegetically line by line through the scripture. We'll all get out of here before lunch. I promise that. But if anyone does get tired or sleepy, just let me know. Tim and Clarissa bought me the most giant coffee of all time this morning. And it's black. So anyone's getting tired, just let me know. Um, you're welcome to share in that with me. A God of the impossible. The word impossible is an interesting word, right? When it's declared and used, either inside the church or outside the church, by believers and non-believers alike, it's used with a lot of authority. It, something's impossible. Can this happen? No, no, that's impossible. Can this thing work out this way? No, it's impossible. This is an impossible situation. But when we look a bit deeper at the word itself and how we use it, it's really based on our perception of reality that we use the word impossible. So there are two types of people sitting in this room, people with iPhones and people with other kinds of phones, right? There's an iPhone team and an Android team. And very rarely, someone will make the jump one way or the other way. I've made that jump twice. I'm the only person I know who's made it twice, jumped and then jumped back across. I won't tell you which way. But for iPhone people, to even consider an Android phone, for the vast majority of you, is impossible. <laughs> and for Android people, if you're Samsung people or Huawei or OnePlus or any of these people, even considering going to iPhone is like going to the dark side. It's impossible, right? It's absolutely impossible. For some of you, eating durian is impossible. For some of you, a world without durian would be impossible, right? So this word impossible we use really when we look at it we use it to describe a set of circumstances based on our perception of those circumstances. We see that throughout this passage of Scripture. Lazarus is dead. 
And so for all of the people there, they correctly, with or without medical training, they are well aware of the reality that, generally speaking, people who are dead stay dead. Right? That continues to be the case today. I don't have any medical training. But I'm Sri Lankan, so I have 23 cousins and 15 of, 15 of them are doctors, so they tell me this constantly. I'm the loser that became a lawyer. But that's, an, but that's another story. And so we see this declaration of the situation of Lazarus being dead as an impossible situation. Death, ultimately, is, is the most impossible situation that we face. And so we see three different types of responses and reactions to this impossible situation. And what I want to show you guys this morning is that how we respond to God is inextricably linked with how we respond to what we otherwise would deem to be impossible. Right? So that's what I want to talk about. And I want to talk about these three categories of responses. There is the uncertain response, there is the negative response, and then there is God's response. All right? And for the most part, all of us are somewhere in all three categories. Right? Some people are entirely in the uncertain, some entirely in the negative, some entirely in God's. But more often than not, in our human brokenness, we usually have some level of all three, like an equalizer, right? like an audio engineering equalizer. So the challenge for each of us this morning is to be open to what God is saying to us in identifying where we normally are with him and with what we would otherwise consider to be impossible circumstances. See where each of these categories resonates with you and the extent to which it resonates with you and what God is calling you to do as a result of this. So firstly, the uncertain response. And ironically, the uncertain response we see from the people closest to Jesus. We see it in Mary and Martha, right? So Martha runs to Jesus when she hears that he's coming. And they know him, right? They love him. They know who he is. They've declared who he is. They declare it even in the story, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And yet she goes to him, and she explains to him how impossible the situation is. And then she makes some really amusing suggestions to Jesus. She says, if only you'd have got here a little bit earlier, then he wouldn't have died. You could have stopped him from dying. So she's not rejecting the person of Jesus. She's acknowledging his power. She's saying that if he'd got here earlier, he could have stopped Lazarus from dying. She, she acknowledges that there's divinity, that there's supernatural power, that this is not a normal person. She loves him. She knows him. But she questions the impossibility of the situation based on her limited understanding of the circumstances. Right? And then Mary comes and says exactly the same thing. And we don't see any dialogue between Mary and Martha. So it's very likely that they both come to the same conclusion independently. They both know Jesus, they both love Jesus, they know who he is, and they, yet they both say to him in this situation, if only you'd have got here earlier, then our brother wouldn't have died. Lazarus wouldn't have died. So they are going to this man who they've acknowledged is the son of God, who has divine power, who is God incarnate as a person. They've seen him perform other miracles, perform healing. And yet they go to him, and like management consultants, they give him some strategic advice. Just so you know, we know who you are, we love you, we're on board with all of this, but just so you know, for next time, when someone's sick, you really should try and get there earlier. <laughs> just so you know, just in case you weren't aware of this, and then everything would work out because you would be able to stop them from dying. How often do you and I do this? Right? Those of us in the room that know Jesus and are walking with him. Yeah, we love you. We know you. Everything's good, Jesus. Except just in this situation, it would have been really good if you'd have done this or if you'd have done that or if you could now do this. Just strategic advice 
Just trust me on this. Right? There's a Jewish Christian scholar called Alfred Edersheim, and he depicts this moment with Mary and Martha's reaction beautifully. And this resonates with all of our hearts, I think, in some way, shape, or form. He says, in that moment, Mary and Martha knew and loved Jesus in their disbelief. They knew and loved him amidst their disbelief. Right? So this is not disastrous. This is not blasphemous. This is not a gospel salvation issue, but how often do we make that mistake that we know who he is, we're walking with him, and yet given the circumstances, disbelief seeps in and doubt seeps in. It might be that we're out there at university being knocked around by atheistic professors. It might be that we're just watching TV and movies that are pumping secularism out of the screens and out of the speakers at us day after day after day. It might be that things are just tough in life. Things are tough. We're looking for a life partner or we're looking for a promotion or we're looking for a job and the situation seems impossible. And so while we don't reject or walk away from Jesus, we continue to love him in our disbelief. There's some disbelief. It comes from a world-centric paradigm. It comes from thinking in a world-centric way. And here are the two mistakes that we make, that Mary and Martha made. It comes from the mistakes of overestimating the power of circumstances and underestimating the power of God and his willingness to act in those circumstances. That's what summarizes and underpins the uncertain response to the impossible and the uncertain response to God. We overestimate the power of circumstances and we underestimate the power of God and his willingness to act in those circumstances. That's the uncertain response. Because we're closed. We're closed by our limited understanding of our lives, of ourselves, of the world, of our families, of our jobs. We only have a limited understanding. We have incomplete information. And I remember when I was a lawyer, when I was in a courtroom, if you're in a courtroom trying to make very bold and clear declarations and arguments and you have to say to the judge after every sentence, by the way, I have incomplete information, you get thrown out of the courtroom. That's a mistrial on the spot. And yet we do it in our own lives. We make bold declarations about what's impossible, about our doubt, about our struggles with incomplete information. And we miss what could be just over the horizon or just around the corner because we don't fully accept and understand the power of God and his willingness to act in those circumstances. Around the turn of the century, the night, going from the 1800s to the 1900s, I forgot, we've had another turn of the century after that, haven't we? I was born way back in the 1900s. Um, so, you know. Um, around the turn of that century, the 1800s into the 1900s, the primary way of getting around was horse and cart, right? And one of the, there were a few kind of financial centers of economic activity. And one of them was New York City, Manhattan. And so per capita, there were more horses and carts in Manhattan than any other city in the world. London and New York were kind of the two centers. And everyone was getting around with horses and carts. And one of the problems, particularly because Manhattan was an island, was horse manure. They didn't know where to get rid of this horse manure. They couldn't just throw it into the Hudson or the East River because that's where the water source came from. There were all kinds of pollution problems. They were fishing there and stuff. They couldn't burn it off so much because it's an island. All the smoke would go everywhere. They had to kind of ship it and they tried to take it out to farmers and agricultural landowners in the surrounding parts of the mainland. But this became a huge problem. And there were literally piles and piles of horse manure building up in Manhattan. Right? Sorry to paint this picture in the morning. I assume you've all had your breakfast. And everyone said, this is impossible. This is an impossible situation. We're going to have to go back to walking. There's no way around this. And people were trying to find ways to burn off 
um, the manure, to dissolve it, to chemically deal with it, so it just got eradicated, to bury it. They were ex experimenting with all kinds of things based on their limited world-centric understanding of the reality and what they consider to be the impossibility of the situation. And then within a couple of years, and everyone thought, there's no way through this. This is impossible. And then a couple of years later, Henry Ford invented the internal combustion engine and the motor car was invented. And the whole problem disappeared overnight. The whole problem disappeared overnight. No one, in looking at the impossibility of that situation, for a second considered the possibility of internal combustion or the invention of the motor car. That's just a tiny little human example. How much more is the pos are the possibilities when we're dealing with the God of the universe? Right? In our situations, when they're so limited and our circumstances seem so impossible, we need to remember that we have a God who has the power to act in those circumstances and the willingness to act. He may not act in exactly the way that we hope or want or expect in the moment, but he's the God over everything. So this uncertain response is not something that's grounded in reason. It's not something that's grounded in the truth of our relationship with God. And it's not something that honors the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he is and who he wants to be in our lives. So that's the uncertain response. Secondly, the negative response. Now, the uncertain response, one more thing, the uncertain response is grounded in a lack of evidence. It's an evidential problem. Mary and Martha had never seen Jesus raise anyone from the dead. So they have an evidential problem. They were like, okay, so we can do this. If we just have water lying around and we want a nice Shiraz with dinner, Jesus can handle that. If we want, we've got some blind people and we want them to see, Jesus can handle that. But we have no evidence of this happening, this death situation being overcome. So... The uncertain response to the impossible, the uncertain response to God, is a problem of evidence. That might be you here today. You might be walking with Jesus, you might not be, but what you're looking for is more evidence. You're looking for answers to these questions. And Jesus' response is, of course, to give you exactly that. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He provides the evidence. So if you've got questions, as I was saying about our ministry, the answers are there. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true, so we can stand up to evidential testing and scrutiny and reason. We can stand up to the tests that all truth claims need to be able to stand up to. So the uncertain response is grounded in a need for more evidence, and God is willing to provide that evidence if we're willing to follow it. Right? Plato said, you will find truth if you follow the evidence, but you have to follow it to where it leads. You can't just follow it to where you want to follow it. You have to follow it to where it leads. And as an apologist, I certainly was looking for a long time, and there's no other way if you follow it honestly, it will lead you to the person of Jesus Christ. All of the evidence, historical, scientific, scriptural, sociological, psychological, existential, political, cultural, philosophical, all the evidence you can think of points to the person of Jesus Christ. So that is an evidential thing, the uncertain response to God. That can be dealt with by evidence. The negative response to God is slightly more tricky and sadly more common. The negative response to the impossible and the negative response to God is not grounded in evidence, it's grounded in a lack of moral will. So the evidential problem is a mind problem that you can solve with the intellect. Apologetics is a part of that. But the negative response is a heart problem. It's a moral resistance to the truth of God, to the truth of Jesus, to the truth of the gospel, and an unwillingness to even look at the evidence. So one of two things happens. People either follow the evidence, it leads to Jesus, or it points there at least, but they're unwilling because they don't like it. Or they're not even willing to consider the evidence because they've already decided they don't want it to be true. 
They don't want this to be true. They're afraid of what it might mean for them. And this negative response is perfectly encapsulated, not in the responses of Mary and Martha and the other bystanders who saw, many of whom believed, but in the responses of the Jewish leaders. That's why I added that last bit to the scripture when I was reading it. I didn't add it. I just kept reading when I'd already been reading for a long time. That's why that's an important part to read, because it doesn't, the story doesn't end when Jesus raises Lazarus. Because then the people there, some of them believe, that's a good thing, but there it doesn't end either. Some of those people then go and tell other people, as you would if someone comes and raises someone from the dead. When they tell the Jewish leaders, the response is not an uncertain response. It's not an evidential problem. They don't say, did he really raise him? Or where's the evidence for this? Or where's the, you know, what about the scientific evidence? And what about the empirical evidence? What about this? What about that? No, they accepted the evidence straight away. They couldn't deny it. We've got eyewitnesses here, multitudes of eyewitnesses that saw this happen. The Jewish leaders didn't reject the evidence. They knew what the evidence meant. They knew the reality of who Jesus was. They refused to believe because of what it would mean for them. So their response, as it is in the scripture, their response is, if we let this guy continue to do what he's doing, so they're accepting what he's doing. They know that he's raising people from the dead. They know he's healing. They know he's performing miracles. They know who he's claiming to be. And all of the evidence points very obviously to the fact that he is who he claims to be. They said, if he continues to do this, more and more people will believe in him. And then here's the kicker. The final line is, more and more people will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. They were not worried. They did not dislike or reject Jesus because of a lack of evidence. They were worried about what it meant for what they had to give up and what it would cost them to believe and to accept this truth. One of my friends, Abdu, he's the North American director of our ministry, um, he, he said he searched and searched and searched for truth for a long time. It took a couple of years, I think, before he gave his life to Jesus. And he said the answers and the evidence were not difficult to find, but they were difficult to accept. For some of us, this isn't the case for all of us, but for some of us, the answers and the evidence will not be difficult to find or understand, but they'll be very difficult to accept. Because of what it might cost you, what it might seem to cost you, because we're so focused on what we have right now, we lose focus on the amazing blessing and gifts and joy and prosperity and peace and eternal life and flourishing and fulfillment that the gospel of Jesus Christ actually offers us. This was the problem for these guys. It wasn't a problem of evidence. It was a problem of the heart. It wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a moral problem. They were pushing back morally because of what the truth of who Jesus is would cost them. They loved their power. They loved their position. They loved their nation. They were so anchored with their minds and their hearts in what they had for themselves, that they were not willing to accept that Jesus was who he said he was, to understand that this evidence was so overwhelming that there was no, nothing else to do but believe in him, as so many other people were in that very moment. So the uncertain response is an evidential problem and can be solved with evidence. But the negative response is a moral problem, and it can only be solved by people willingly opening their hearts to look at the evidence, willingly opening their hearts to the person of Jesus Christ, willingly opening their hearts and their minds to this God of the impossible who can do what we would otherwise deem to be impossible. And that's why through the power of the Holy Spirit, through prayer, this is what we need to be praying for, for people in our lives and for ourselves, for our hearts to be opened. Because sometimes that's all that can do it. Reason will get you so far. 
But that's what Ravi says to us all the time. Apologetics is not about winning arguments. It's about winning people. It's about winning people. And if you argue someone into the kingdom of God, then someone can come along tomorrow and argue them out of it again. It's got to be a heart decision. Apologetics is about removing the intellectual barriers so people can get a clear look at the cross of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit can move and they can make a decision for themselves. So the negative response, moral problem. The uncertain response, evidential problem. The uncertain response to God and things that we deem impossible is a problem of overestimating the power of circumstances and underestimating the power of God and his willingness to act in those circumstances. The negative problem, the moral problem, is a problem of overestimating people, underestimating the gravity of sin, the gravity of our own selfishness and self-absorption, and underestimating the majesty of God. So the moral problem, why people reject with their hearts the gospel of Christ and the person of Christ, they do it because of, they're doing two, one of two things, usually a combination of the two, underestimating the gravity of sin and underestimating the majesty of God. They're elevating themselves. And John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he summarizes this perfectly. He says, all human problems come from one or both of these two mistakes, underestimating the gravity of sin or underestimating the majesty of God. If you make either of those mistakes, you're in trouble. And that's ultimately the definition of sin itself, is putting ourselves before God. Martin Luther, I think, has probably the best definition of sin outside of Scripture. He says, sin is men and women curved in on themselves. That's all sin is. It's just us looking at ourselves and our power and our things and our families before God. So the danger is often we're looking at good things. We're looking at things like career. We're looking at friendships. We're looking at families. We're looking at reputation. We're looking at technology. We're looking at all of these other things that are not in and of themselves bad things. The minute we put them before God, then we're at risk of that looking on ourselves and missing him. So we have the uncertain response to the impossible and to God. We have the negative response to the impossible and to God. Thirdly and finally then, what's God's response? What's the alternative option? What's God's response to the impossible? And we see an interesting parallel here because our response to the impossible is inextricably linked to our response to God, whereas God's response to the impossible is also inextricably linked to his response to us. So let's unpack that. What is God's response to the impossible? So Jesus comes to what I think we can all broadly agree, both inside and outside the Christian faith, is the most impossible situation that people face, which is death. Right? One of my favorite comedians from back in the 1900s, um, Jerry Seinfeld. Some of you might remember him. <laughs> it's amazing how many people don't know who Jerry Seinfeld is these days. It's very depressing. I don't think I'm that old either. Like, I'm 35 years old. I don't understand where time went so quickly. Um, Jerry Seinfeld, he's talking about death, and he, sa- and he cites some research, and the research said that people's number one fear globally is public speaking, and their number two fear is death. And maybe it's because I do this for a living, but I'm like, I, that's difficult to, um, to believe. Surely death is number one. And so Seinfeld very helpfully says afterwards, he, he makes light of it, and he says, if that's true, then if you're going to be at a funeral, people will generally speaking rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. <laughs> I haven't seen the data. I would contend that with the data. I think death is probably number one. Maybe it's because I'm a public speaker, but I think death is number one. But even if death is number two, it is broadly accepted to be the most impossible thing. And when we look at all of the isms 
that humankind has come up with to try and organise our societies, organise our economies, organise our governments, there's one glaring gap in the middle of all of these isms, whether it's communism or capitalism or socialism or idealism or postmodernism or humanism or secularism, whatever it is, none of them can handle death. None of them have any response to death. They're completely silent. They're all about life, health and education and employment outcomes during life and they've got nothing when it comes to death. They all run into the cave very, very scared when it comes to death, all of the isms. So this is an impossible situation. And so our songwriters and our movie makers and our poets, they've been writing about death for a long time, trying to make sense of it, trying to understand how we can deal with it. And after romantic love, because that seems to sell more movies and more, and, and more songs, death is the next most talked about and written about thing in the creative arts. And so we see the great poem by Dylan Thomas. Many of you will have heard it. Um, and it has this such a powerful line for which Dylan Thomas is known, talking about death and how we are called to respond to it. It says you have to rage, rage against the dying of the light. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. It's quite an inspiring line. It's a beautiful piece of poetry. The problem is he doesn't say with what. He said, just go and rage against the dying of the light. We know what he means and he's, a, he's obviously a smart guy. But this is what the world is told to do with death. Just rage against it. Just rage against it. And so we rage against it emotionally and medically. We invent things. We use technology. We use advances. We try and think ourselves out of it. We try and sing ourselves out of it. We try and you know, philosophize our way out of it. Death is the one thing that outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are very, very limited, even, limited people even willing to engage with the question. And so Jesus faces this impossible situation head on, the most impossible thing for humankind, death itself. And what's his first response? In the scripture, and this is where, with respect to the English translators who are far more intelligent than I am, but the English language is simply not equipped to deal with this passage well. Because the best we can come up with, I don't know what translations you guys have got, but if you've got the ESV or the NIV uh, or the message or the New Living or whatever it is, it'll say something along the lines of um, he was deeply moved uh, or he groaned in his spirit or something like that. He was disgruntled. None of those are incorrect. But the Greek word that John uses when he's actually writing that, the Greek word that is used for Jesus' reaction, which is really like a groaning, a disgruntlement, is the same word that was used at the time to describe what horses do before they go into battle. You know when horses go up on their hind legs? They do it when they see the enemy just before they're going into battle. And it's almost like a disregard, a hatred for what they're seeing and for what they're about to come into combat with. That's what Jesus does. That's his response to death. It's a complete aversion to who he is for everything that he is in his substance and in himself and everything he stands for. This is a warrior, a soldier, ready to go into battle. The difference here is it happens to be God himself as a person. That's the significance of that moment. And so he reacts like this, this groaning, this disgruntlement, this fierce, vicious response to this thing called death that is so impossible for all of the people that he loves so much. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. So he defeats it. So he stares it down and then he defeats it. Now, that is a wonderful thing in itself. If that was the end of the story and I was searching after truth, that would be the ball game for me anyway. But if we're real about it and if we're honest about it, that story in itself has no relevance for you and me. 
It's nice for Lazarus and for his family, but that's 2,000 years ago, good for him, that's great. That's like me hearing about a guy down the street with a locked door that has a 55-inch TV, you know, during the basketball grand finals. That's great for him, but I'm still sitting at home with, without what he's got. There's a, apparently, you can actually go and see Lazarus's tomb. Some of you men have gone and seen it, and, and all it says is, how cool is this for a tomb? It says, Lazarus, twice dead, friend of Jesus. <laughs> that is the coolest tombstone I've ever seen. Go check it out if you're ever in the Middle East. But yeah, so it's just, you know, it's something that's great for him, great for his family, great for his friends, great for the people that saw it. But where is the relevance? The relevance comes just chapters later, just weeks later, when we realize that what Jesus did on that day in raising Lazarus was just a teeny tiny preview of what was coming at the cross. When he did exactly the same thing, except it wasn't just for one person or one family. It was for you and me. It was for absolutely all of us. There's another movie called Sea Biscuit that I really like. No one else seems to like it. Some people here like this movie? All right. It's, it's Tobey Maguire before he became Spider-Man, right? <laughs> I think he's a much better jockey than he is a Spider-Man because he's probably like around my height. Anyway, he was perfect for this movie. The movie's called Sea Biscuit. It's about a horse, a racehorse in World War II America. This is when the world is struggling for hope, where you know, there's fascism blasting its way across the planet and no one really knows how the war is going to turn out. And so there's just a lot of just depression and anxiety and hopelessness. And the situation globally for all of humankind seems impossible. This is an impossible situation. And this racehorse, Seabiscuit, who is the most unlikely successful racehorse that's ever come across horse racing, he's got some good breeding but he's like small and a bit stocky and isn't putting up good times at all when he's being trained and they're testing his times and time-trialling him. And then suddenly, Seabiscuit starts to win races, starts to win a lot of races, and goes undefeated. And he's got a new trainer and he's got a new jockey. The jockey's played by Toby Maguire. They develop this relationship. And somehow, this jockey seems to be able to lead Seabiscuit into these races that he continues to win, even though he's, he seems smaller and weaker and slower than these other horses. And this becomes a global phenomenon. Not just across the horse racing world, but across the world at a time where there's hopelessness. This is like an underdog story of this little racehorse that's just winning races everywhere. And there's another horse at the time that is doing the same thing. But this other horse is much more conventionally successful. He's the kind of horse you would expect to win. His victories don't seem that impossible. His name is War Admiral. He's a big, black, like Arabian stallion, huge horse. He's cleaning up. He's destroying it. He's putting up faster times than Seabiscuit. He's winning by bigger distances than Seabiscuit. And so ultimately what, of course, happens is that they agree to a match race. A match race is just a one-on-one sprint between only two horses. No one else, just these two horses. They agree to this match race, and everyone, all of the media, everyone is like, this is impossible. There's no way Seabiscuit beats the War Admiral. He's bigger, stronger, faster. There's no way. The times are quicker. Seabiscuit, in the middle of the movie, breaks his leg as well. And so it's just everything up against him, right? And what all the tacticians say in the media and to the jockey, they say the only way you have any chance of defeating War Admiral is if you take Seabiscuit out early. Take him out strong at the start, get a lead, and then just hope that War Admiral doesn't catch up to you. Because War Admiral finishes so strong. He's got so much strength and power that seems impossible to overcome. There's no way Seabiscuit can overcome him at the end. You've got to get out early. 
But what the jockey knew, Seabiscuit's jockey knew and Seabiscuit knew, is that the reason, the secret to Seabiscuit's success was combat, was a contested space. The only reason Seabiscuit was winning all those races was because the jockey would line him up with his opponents. And as soon as Seabiscuit saw another horse, eye to eye, there was no chance. He would always win. But if Seabiscuit was just on the track by himself, not much doing. <laughs> not too stressed. Not much purpose. Needed something to be up against, right? That's just interesting. That's not part of the analogy. That part is not connected. But basically, the important part to know is that Seabiscuit is at his most powerful in full flight and full flourishing when he can first see the horses he's up against. And so what Toby Maguire does is Seabiscuit gets out to a bit of a lead, which is what they think, but then as they're rounding the final stretch, he holds Seabiscuit back and allows War Admiral to gallop up alongside him. And then he holds them side to side. And then Seabiscuit eyeballs War Admiral. <laughs> These two horses are eyeball to eyeball. Seemingly impossible. It's more like this, right? Like when I eyeball people. So you're eyeballing, you're eyeballing like this. He eyeballs him, his arch enemy, the horse that everyone said he couldn't defeat, the horse that based on all human and earthly analysis, it's impossible for him to beat. Seabiscuit eyeballs him with a healing leg, smaller, weaker, seemingly weaker, and then gallops away and defeats him. It's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. He held himself back. He limited himself, allowing himself to go to the cross, seeming like he was weaker than what he was up against. And in doing so, he, on your behalf and my behalf, eyeballed our greatest enemy, the biggest, darkest, strongest enemy that humankind has ever faced and continues to face, death itself. He held himself back so death could come up alongside him. And then he eyeballed it and then he galloped over the top of it swallowed it up. Isaiah, right? He will swallow up death. That's exactly what he did. And he did it for you and me. You know how much he loves you? If you were the only person in the world, he would still have come and died for you on that cross. He didn't do it for us as a team. He did it for you. He did it specifically for you. Eyeballed our arch enemy on our behalf, an enemy that we have absolutely no hope of even matching up against on our own and in our own strength. He eyeballed death on our behalf and then galloped over the top of it and galloped away. That's what this God of the impossible came into our world to do for you and me. The question now for you and me is what our response to that will be. Will we respond in an uncertain way? Will we respond in a negative way? Or will we accept the truth and the power and the majesty of God's response? Not just God's response to death, which he proved to us on the cross, was more than sufficient, and then affirmed three days later where he raised himself, where the Father raised the Son. But the same response to all of the situations in your and my life right now today that we think are impossible. So whatever that situation is, this is the God we're talking about. This is the God we're dealing with that I've been talking about. How impossible does that situation seem now? if you're willing to accept his power, his majesty, his love for you, his willingness to come and eyeball every enemy you've ever faced and then galloping over the top of it. The response for you and me this morning is to that God. However well you know him, however 
Well, you want to know him, however doubtful you are or skeptical you are, wherever you are in your search for truth or in your walk with Jesus, he's calling you today to come deeper, to come to know him even more closely, or maybe to come to know him for the first time. I urge you, I encourage you to make that step, whether it's a step closer, a step deeper, or a step into that relationship for the first time. Please do so today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all of my brothers and sisters in this room. I thank you that you are a God of the impossible that came and faced down the impossible death itself for us, for each of them, that you know them, that you love them, that you want to know them more deeply and more closely and more intimately. So there is nothing in the world that will ever be impossible again. Help us to accept that. Help us to know that. Help us to overcome both the intellectual and the moral, the head and the heart, obstacles that might be in our way, and amidst our brokenness and imperfection, to draw into your perfection and your power and your majesty so that we can walk more closely with you each day. And for those of us here, Lord, that might not know you or might have drifted from you, um, I just pray that they would take that step back into relationship with you today. So as as we stand to worship, Lord, I just pray that those of us here who have been challenged this morning by you would have the courage to do business with you. In Jesus' name, amen.